Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotics. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Markland and I created the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit TheReptileReport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum mag. It also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buy and selling? Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rate. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live, on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. another episode of Morelia Python Radio. Tonight, I'm very pleased to say that we have Mr. Travis Wyman, and he is going to be talking genetics with us, and he is going to be schooling us, Owen. Dear Lord, yes. 
<laughs> like, dear, dear God, we're all going to look like complete idiots by the time we're done with this. So, I just yeah. hope everyone's ready. I mean, you know, it's, it will all be schooled together. So yes. it'll be one of those things. And, uh, and it's not like, and here's the other thing is, uh, I doubt, uh, that even after this episode that people are going to automatically start using terms correctly, uh, when it comes to genetics, like we're not going to stop calling things codom. So, uh, but yeah, at least we'll know the difference. So, <laughs> yeah. So we're going to hit on some basic genetics and then we threw a couple of, uh, different things in the mix to see uh what uh travis's thoughts on it now obviously with some of these things that we're going to hit on um you know we really don't know the history behind it so it's really kind of you know speculating on different things uh yeah we will because some of the things that we're trying to look at and trying to explain are still hatchlings babies things like that so we haven't really seen what they could do breeding wise to help kind of unlock what's going on with them genetically so we're just kind of thinking kind of guessing here taking our yeah. best educated guess and uh for all we know in a few years we can be completely proven wrong so see how it goes so uh yeah we'll we'll get uh travis on here in a couple minutes but what's going on with you owen nothing nothing oh <laughs> um, <laughs> nothing really i mean we were uh we had the hamburg show uh and then everything kind of just got really quiet over here, which is awesome. So, I mean, I'm enjoying the raising up the little guys and moving everybody up to different foods. And some of the babies from this year are starting to have their second sheds. So you're yeah. really starting to see like the color kind of emerge, which is what I want. And uh, I did a high con tiger to my caramel jag this year. And uh -huh. I got one caramel that I would say is a caramel tiger jag by his pattern and stuff like that. Okay. Um, and he's starting to pop and I'm like, Oh, hello. So I don't know. I have too many caramel things. So I don't think I can hold them back, but I'm like, Oh, Oh good. I got some good looking animals to bring to Tinley, even though I don't have that many to bring to Tinley. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in the same camp as you, uh, you know, it's weird. Uh, to think this, but we're really, I mean, for us, as far as me and you, typically we start the breeding shutdown in October, the yeah. end of October, Yeah, which is really like a couple months away. Soon. So. Soon. Very <laughs> you soon. Know? It's soon. Did you, kind of crazy. You, have you noticed any kind of push with your animals towards like the feed me now or die kind of mentality? Oh yeah, they are turned on like I don't understand. It's like it's probably been the past two weeks, but everybody is like I've I in the past I, I get spoiled where I can like open their door and I'm like, here's your water and they're like, Okay, I'll deal with that later. Now I open the door and there's teeth and a couple feet of python flying at me. So and there's not a single rat in the room. Like I would understand if I'm thawing like even if I'm thawing out like hopper rats or pinky rats for the for the babies. The adults go crazy, but there's not a single rat in the room and everybody's up ready to roll. They want food. They want it now. And I'm like, you guys ate a week. Like you guys ate like a few days ago. Knock it off. So, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, with me particularly, um, I, I approach carpet pythons in the sense that I believe that they're seasonal. Um, I, I believe too. that, uh, they're, they're just where they're from. Um, which, which on a side note, yesterday I was watching a, uh, I follow this YouTube uh, guy who goes around and just, uh, he's in Australia and he just really just, he collect well he doesn't collect he rescues snakes i guess and for people mm-hmm. that have them in their you know their garage and whatnot and um he goes and finds this beautiful coastal oh my gosh and it was stuck in pallets <laughs> in pallets, oh, you know, like pallets. Okay. And it was outside and they all have jackets on and it's like windy as heck and uh you know they're just it's just so cold and here's this carpet python just chilling in this pallet under the sun. And, you know, it was pretty neat. But anyway, I That's believe awesome. that they're seasonal. And I think that part of that, uh, what I what I do is uh, I feed them seasonally as well. So yeah. I make a big push now. I start usually at the beginning of August and just kind of mm-hmm. like really put the, put, the, put the food to them. And then come October, they shut off. And then they don't eat again until they're heating back up in February. So Yeah. The the weird thing is for me though is that and I, and I I do the same exact thing, is that so many of my females did not breed last year, so nobody's really lost any of the weight that you would normally associate with breeding season. So like right, right now, normally I'm like normally I'm like quick, you need your weight, get your food on, but now they just they're just some of them are already huge. What's the point? So right. yeah crazy <laughs> i know well, it's that perfect uh balance that they have to have of uh you know they have to have enough food and reserve in order to you know say okay well i'm going to produce follicles and uh you know after talking with ben uh many times about reproduction of pythons and whatnot i just uh, you know it just makes sense to me that like for the longest time you heard you know don't feed your snakes you know, don't you don't want them to be too fat? But I think with females, I guess they can be too fat. But they know, can be too fat. But obviously, I'm not following that. Uh, but but the thing idea. is that, uh, however healthy you think your females are, the second they have eggs, the day after they have their eggs, you look at them, you're like, oh my god, I'm killing it, because they're just yeah. so thin. I mean, they're, they're basically a deflated balloon. So I mean. And that's something you, know, you got to think about is that they do lose a lot of weight when they have eggs or, you know, what's even worse. Well, what's even, what's even worse is when you do maternal incubation, you want to see death on, on, well, not see? even legs, but oh my goodness. <laughs> not death on legs. They don't have legs. <laughs> yeah. It's those poor girls, man. <laughs> it's, I mean, but I do know that there are some animals that will eat while they're gravid and there are some animals that will eat while they're sitting on a pile of eggs. Uh, every animal is different. If you have one of those animals, that's awesome. Uh, my female pixie ate, uh, a week before she dropped eggs. So I think she ate and I'm thinking, Oh God, she's eating. There's no way she's grabbing. I've just been like fooling myself. And then she lays a bunch of eggs and I'm like, all right, well, never mind. So it's, (laughs) it's sometimes they throw a loop for you. So throw you for a loop. So, um, basically I've just been feeding like normal into this august except for the female the two females that i had that actually had eggs they're getting a little extra but all the other girls are doing normal because they again they haven't lost that much weight 
yeah. if any. So we'll see. Either I'm going to get like, you know, 50 eggs out of these girls or, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of hoping for a better year than last year. I'm a little intrigued to, and a little nervous because I'm breaking in a new room again. So, yeah. Yeah, that always changes. Changes yeah. everything. But uh, yeah. very cool. Well, um, let's uh, stop our rambling and let's get That's Travis enough, on here yeah. and get the show going. Hey, Travis, welcome to Morelia Python Radio. How you doing? I'm doing well enough. Yourself? Uh, we're doing great. We're surviving. So, <laughs> um, Travis, why don't you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Uh, how long you've been into reptiles and uh, what kind of brought you to it? Stuff like that. Um, well, like probably most people in herps, I got started at a real young age by just finding something out and about. Uh, I was four years old in preschool and I found a garter snake in the playground. Took it home for a couple, three days, then had to let it go. Um, I still have that complete memory. I know somewhere I drew a picture of it, which is probably lurking in some scrapbook of my mother's waiting to come back and haunt me. But after that... <laughs> and, and, and it will. It will. Yeah. So <laughs> might as well just be prepared will. for it. Oh, yeah. So um, after that, it was just, you know, it was all downhill. Uh, I've, you know, spent most of my childhood catching garter snakes. I had a big field across the street from my house. I was always out there flipping rocks, flipping logs. Um, about a mile away, there was a rock outcropping that was populated by a bunch of Western fence lizards. So I'd be pouncing on them whenever I could. Um, continued like that up through junior high, high school. Uh, picked up my first true captive bred snake when I was 14, an Amel horn. Uh, I was 24 years ago, I still have the cantankerous old son of a bitch. <laughs> Excellent. So, all right. Um, and then did you kind of just keep that one or did you kind of shift off into some other guys? I've, I've screwed around with just about everything. Um, okay. I mostly do snakes. That's where my, my main interest is. Uh, mm -hmm. I've got balls now, uh, mostly because they have, you know, they have a lot of the genetics to play with. So it's, it's a way that my own studies have carried through into my hot actor. But you know, I've got a chondro, I've got a blackhead, I've got a pair of alternas, I've got a hog nose. Um, you know, I've dabbled in lizards. I've got a African fat tail and a knob tail that are nominally my daughters, but mm. you know. We all know what that's like. It's nominally your child's, and you end up taking care of it. <laughs> well, at least again, you know. <laughs> at least you know where you're at and where and where you stand with it, and you're good. So, yeah, uh, you know, I've done frogs. Um, I kept salamanders for a while. We used to catch those at our pond. So I've dabbled in just a little bit of everything, but snakes are the constant throughout. Okay. And uh, what pushed you to get involved with uh, genetics? Genetics is just, well, I guess it kind of evolved from, you know, my love of science, my love of biology, my love of nature. Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, as a kid, I was out flipping rocks, always into something, bugs, snakes, lizards, toads, whatever. Um, the more I got into it, the more I wanted to know about it. So I started focusing my studies on it. The more I started studying it, the more I thought about where my career would go. 
if I wanted to stay in biology. And I kind of reasoned that in of biology, it's easier to move upward than it is to move downward. So if I emphasized in genetics, then I could go anywhere in the fields of biology. I could stay in genetics or I could move up a level to microbiology or cellular biology, or I could move up a couple of levels to, you know, broader plant biology or animal biology, veterinary medicine, things like that. So I just looked at genetics as the, the ground floor that I could go anywhere from rather than if I went into pre-med, it'd be harder to slide down to something a step or two below because you've got to hyper-specialize out from there. Um, I ended up staying in genetics just because there's so much going on in the field of genetics that mm. I mean, every day there's something new and something fascinating. It's a new genome, a new discovery, you know, how to generate, you know, clusters of genes that lead to autism, mm. solid black chickens inside and out where their organs are black, their tongues are black, everything is black. You know, there's always something new and different in genetics. So it just hooked me that way. And that's what it's kept me at. It, 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 genetics was one of those very interesting classes in college. So I could see how somebody could get absolutely hooked into it. So very cool. Now, Obviously, in the reptile community, we kind of have a basic understanding of genetics, and we use a lot of the terminology wrong. So is it all right if we go through some of the terms right now and you kind of give us an example of each and kind of explain how uh, each one works or what the hell it is? Yeah, uh, kind of to straighten that up. Uh, we're, it's, it's really easy. We're going to start with the one is um, you explain a recessive trait to us. Okay. A recessive trait is where for a phenotype to be present with your mutation, you need to have be homozygous. So both copies of the gene have to be present for you to see the mutant phenotype. Okay. Uh, there's, there's no visual het with these. Uh, that term gets thrown around a lot, and I hate it. It drives me nuts, but there are no visual <laughs> hets with recessives. Um, yeah, the most classic example of this that is, you know, you can see it everywhere, um, all the different snakes that people keep, but, you know, other things too. Koalas, kangaroos, birds, is albinos. Yeah. Albinos are a recessive trait. If you have an albino allele and one wild allele, you look like a wild type animal. But mm -hmm. you have two albinos, you've got the pink eyes, the white, you know, if you've got other pigment systems involved, those ones come to the front. So with carpet pythons with ball pythons, you get the yellows that come through. With corn snakes, you get the ones through. Um, other ones that we see, most of the azanthic types that we see in reptiles yeah. tend to be recessive. Um, most of the hypos that we see tend to be recessive, not all of them. Yeah, so. Okay. So now this is one that I know is kind of uh, odd. Um, incomplete dominant, or I think the word they kick around a lot is codom. And is codom even an actual term? Codom is an actual term. Okay. Um, All right, good. So we're not that far different off. different than incomplete dominant, yeah. Damn it. All right, so <laughs> we are that far off. All right, so what is incomplete dominance and what is a codom? 
Okay, incomplete dominance is where if you have one copy of the gene, there is a dominant phenotype. In, so in the simplest terms, if your animal has one copy of the gene, there is a phenotype. And it's okay. expressed roughly 50% of the time if you breed it out. Okay. But that phenotype is incomplete because when you have two copies of the gene, you get a phenotype. That is the complete then phenotype. Okay. So, you know, with, well, zebra and carpets. Uh -huh. Okay. You know, the single gene carrier is that tightly banded, zebra banded animal. Right. And then when you get copies of the gene, it's the solid yellow snake. The super form for right, lack of a better form. form. Yeah. So okay. your incomplete form is the tight bands. Your complete form is no banding at all because it's a solid yellow snake. Okay. Would that also apply to Jaguar in carbon python, even though the complete form is ends in a lethal white gene? Yes, it would. Okay. It would apply to Jaguar. It's an incomplete form. Yeah. The complete form just happens to be lethal. Okay. Okay. Now so that's that's your incomplete. That's dominance. incomplete dominance. So everything we've been calling codom so far has been incomplete dominant. Yes. So what the hell is a codom? Okay, codominant is it's used to apply to dominant genes, dominant alleles yeah. that interact amongst themselves. So. I guess the starting point for this would be to define what a dominant trait is. Yeah, which is the next one. So I want to just skip ahead and we can do that too. Yeah, so. that, that might make it easier. So a dominant yeah, a trait bit. is one where the heterozygous form and the homozygous form have the exact same phenotype. So okay. one copy of the mutant gene, two copies of the mutant gene, they both look identical. The same. Okay. Yeah. Now, with a co-dominant, the best example for this is actually blood types in humans. Okay. You have two different dominant types. You have A and you have B. Now, the genotype for A can be either AO, which is your heterozygote, or AA, which is your homozygous. Uh-huh. And you have the same thing with B, BO or BB. Okay. So AO and AA, you look A, BO, BB. If you bring A and B together, your A, B. Okay. A and B are co-dominant to each other. The two ah. different dominants are co-dominant with each other. They're both equally expressed dominantly when paired together. Ah. Okay. That makes, that may actually makes a lot of sense. All right. So we got that. Is there, is there anything Python wise, whether yeah. it be ball Python or any, any kind of python or any kind of reptile that is co-dominant yeah i have not found anything in the hobby that would absolutely be co-dominant the wow. closest that we have would be in ball pythons with uh -huh. the spider morph and the blackhead morph um there are alleles of the same gene they're okay. both incomplete dominant though but when you put them together they 
they act in what could be interpreted as sort of a co-dominant type of manner. So I don't know how familiar you are with the blackhead morph, but the spider morph is yes. basically the equivalent of a jag. Yes. So, yeah. you know, with the spider morph, you have a massive one in the black pigmentation and overexpression of the gold. The blackhead is sort of the inverse. You have overexpression of the black pigmentation and patterning and reduction in the gold. When you pair them together, one blackhead, one spider gene in the same animal, the animal looks, the, the combination looks basically like a wild type. And that's because each mutation is sort of the opposite of the other. The spider is the uptuned, the blackhead is the downtuned. Uh, and so when you okay. bring them together, you're expressing up against down equally and you zero out. Right. You kind of even out a little bit. You meet in the middle or something like that. Right. So huh. you could you could look at that kind of like a co-dominant, but like I said, ultimately it's not because both of those also have a super form. You've got the super blackhead, which is even more expressed with the dark and less expressed with the gold, and then obviously the spider, super spider is lethal the same way super jack is lethal. Holy right. crap. We've been doing it so wrong for so long. Anyway, <laughs> um wow. That makes a lot of so, sense. I would have never thought the blood type thing, but guy there. I have a, I have a question. This is sort of about the uh, recessive thing, and I guess I have two examples of what when you when people say. I know you said you want to punch people in the head when they say visual markers, or well, is that is that not really recessive then? Because I think of like piebald. Is that not yeah. le a legitimate Those thing, or is that just things. yeah? Yeah, those situations are what they are. I have taken to calling them cryptic incomplete dominance. Um, okay. They are incompletely okay. dominant. Uh -huh. It's just, I like with piebald, I think what it is is, you know, you hear people talk about markers and stuff all the time. And mm -hmm. the way I view it is if the marker is stable, if it's something that you can pick out 100% of the time, now granted it right. may it may take a sharper eye in working with that morph for a while. Yeah. But if it's there, right. if you can breed two, you know, het pieds together and get your 66 percenters, if you can look at your 60 centers and point to them and go, that one and that one are het and that one is not, and consistently do that, that marker, that's your visual het. Now, it may be really, gotcha. really subtle, which is why I've taken to calling them cryptic, but it's there. Uh-huh. You know, right. I think with pied, everybody called it recessive. Again, it's super subtle, but we were bringing in the visual pieds, and people would just breed them out to a wild type and get these animals that were so close to wild type that they they kind of fell into what we would call the, the range of variation for normals back then. You know, gotcha. But then if you look at something like you know the specter ball python or some of these other really cryptic type ones, yeah, people right. sort of stumbled upon those by looking for something that was just a little bit different, a little bit outside the norm, and breeding it and showing, yeah, it consistently throws babies that are a little bit outside the norm, and then when you put them together, you get a super form. Mm -hmm. So I think if the situation were reversed, like if somebody brought in a wild super stripe and bred it out to a normal those animals would have looked so close to normal that they probably would have been called normals. So uh -huh. the specter would be classed as a recessive instead. 
but because it went the opposite way, people, you know, we hit a point where people were looking for just the slightest difference all the time for everything. Gotcha. That so many things got called incomplete dominant now that back then might have been called recessive. And some of the things were said, you know, like you said, piebald is one. I hear a lot about people saying all of the visual, all the, all the, excuse me, all of the hets for clown are visual. You know, I, I don't have enough experience with those. I haven't even really looked at clown hats. But if it's something that's consistently stable, if you can always pick them out of a clutch, then, yeah, clown isn't really a recessive. It would also be a cryptic and complete dominant. But again, because the visual clown came in first and it got bred out and the hets fell into that wild-type range, it just got labeled recessive from the get-go. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. Yeah, because in carpets, we sort of have this with the Exanic, where yeah. the hets sort of have a certain look to them. Now, I don't know if that's across, you know, like it's consistent enough that it would be, you know, incomplete dominant, but uh, I know from people that uh, have bred them, they, they do have a certain look to them. Almost like they almost. You know, I mean, it's like the het kind of looks exanthic. Then when you, you know, you breed it and make an exantic, it like kicks it up a notch, mm -hmm. which is uh, kind of so. Okay, sorry, Owen. Okay, you know, you'll interrupt me eight more times. It's okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> the the next one is uh, polygenic. I, I know we refer to polygenic a lot in carpet pythons when it comes to. Uh, can you explain what a polygenic is in, in genetics? Um, so polygenic is just a phenotype that is a result of multiple genes coming together. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot of things. You know, the tiger is a great example, like you said. You know, there's, there's striping there. Um, yeah. And you've got you know, various degrees of striping now through selective breeding, you've refined so that all those cluster of genes that give rise to striping, mm. you start selecting more and more of them into one animal and you get animals that are neatly striped. Um, and you can line breed that up with, you know, almost anything. You know, you see it with high contrast albinos and ball pythons. It's sort of mm. a secondary effect. The high contrast genes are getting selected for more by accident just because people like a higher contrast albino. But mm -hmm. if you breed a high contrast albino to a normal, those het babies are going to tend towards high contrast themselves, even though they're wild type, because you've enriched those high contrast genes in there. So that high contrast trait is polygenic. Okay. So when it comes to the difference between a polygenic gene and some, an animal that is line bred, is there a specific break between the two or they kind of go hand in hand? They kind of go, well, in the hobby, they kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. A line bred trait is going to be polygenic. Most of the time. Okay. Yeah. You can, you can get polygenic traits in the wild. That's not really line bred. That comes down to more, you know, you're, you're, selective pressures in the wild based on the environment or something like that that's going on. Okay. But yeah, in cat line breeding, 
for things is your polygenic traits. Okay. Um, so when it comes to line breeding, um, and I'll use the jungle carpet python as an example, uh, when does the phenotype become so predictable that it can be called something as uh, like called genetic, like eventually jungle carpets that eventually were in the United States didn't look like the jungle carpets we have today until eventually they were line bred so much so that they're now jungle carpets are generic yellow and black always. Um, and I guess the simplest answer is at all points it would be considered genetic, but okay. for it to be, I guess, more considered characteristic of the morph yeah. or, or the animal or whatever, yeah. Yeah, would be when it breeds um, and there is a little bit of a caveat on that. Like you said, all basically all jungles in the U.S. now are going to bleed or breed black and yellow because that's what all of the selection is for. We basically purged out all of the genes wouldn't be black and yellow, but okay. it only applies because we've got this essentially closed group in the United States of jungle carpet pythons. If you brought, you know if we could suddenly get wild type animals out of Australia tomorrow and you started bringing them in, mm -hmm. if you fed a wild type jungle into your U.S. born jungles, while those offspring probably would have a high degree of black and yellow, they're not going to have the same degree of black and yellow that you would get if you bred two U.S. borns together. Okay. And when it's like dog breeds, I guess is another way to look at it. Yeah. You know, each dog breed is the result of line breeding and it's mm -hmm. they're, they're polygenetic. So if you have labs, as long as you're breeding labs to labs, they're going to look like labs. Right. But if you breed a lab to a German shepherd, what you get out of that, it's not going to look like a lab. Right. It's going to look like a German shepherd. It's going to have traits of both. Now, okay. You can take those lab German Shepherd puppies and breed them back to each other or breed them to other lab German Shepherd puppies and essentially create a breed by selecting for a specific subset of traits that you always see from those type of puppies. Okay. Or you can then breed back to either parent and push it back to where it came from. But that first breeding, you know, you're no longer breeding true there because you're outside of your group. Okay. So after how many generations until you can call something like that would be predictable, because I would imagine if we were breeding normal jungle carpets and something came out bright yellow and black, wouldn't that just be labeled as a morph or something? I mean, when do you eventually just call it as it being a predictable color and pattern with the species? How many generations? It's going to depend. Um, okay. There's, there's no real set answer. Um, it depends on, you know, how many genes are involved in those traits, um, whether those genes are dominant, incomplete, dominant, receptor. I mean, if you're dealing with 30 genes to get that black and yellow and all of them are recessive, mm -hmm. it's going to take a lot of work to get an animal that basically carries all 30 recessive gene pairs. Now, if you're just dealing with four or five dominant or incomplete genes, 
you know, you could probably knock that out in two or three seasons of very careful breeding. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I mean, obviously we've gotten to this point with the jungle carpet python and then we've taken it a few steps further and we've added it to things like the jaguar and if you breed it to a jag you're going to get some bright yellower kind of jags i mean would that really have been predictable or would you kind of a, kind of taken that into account or is that just kind of like a holy crap look what happened kind of a situation it's it's somewhat predictable. Um, okay. Again, it's, it's going to depend on the nature of the genes, but you can think of it, you know, like I said, if you've got, you know, just for giggles, we'll say that there's four genes involved that give mm -hmm. you that black and bright yellow jungle carpet python. We'll call three dominant or incomplete dominant, and one of them is recessive. Okay. Now, odds are with the jungle carpet python population, you've got animals that are basically homozygous for all of those traits because you've just been selecting for them over and over and over again over time. When you breed it to a jag, even though the jag population doesn't carry those specific alleles, you're still pushing basically three dominant genes in to that jag jungle cross. Right. So immediately there you put three bump for the yellow so you would expect the offspring yeah to have more yellow uh -huh. but then the next step would be well then you breed those yellow jags back into carpet or back into jungle and you push for homozygosity across all of them again and you're going to take the yellow of those first generations and you're going to up it another level in the second okay. generation now I know with the big thing is when jungle jags first started coming out, the first thing they did was they made them and they chucked them back to jungles to get the 88 percenters of jungle blood to coastal blood ratio. And they were all really kind of bright. Is there eventually a point with that kind of morph where it does plateau and you can't really get any more jungle influence within that animal or something like that? Yeah, I mean, the point would be, like I said, again, depending on how many genes and the level involved, it's you know, basically the point where you've got homozygosity of all of the genes. You've enriched all of the genes in there that you can. Okay. Now, I mean, there's going to be a little bit of fudge factor because every gene isn't like a perfect light switch. It's not just on or off. Sometimes it's on a little bit more because of the way normally unrelated genes are reacting and things like that. But you will eventually, yeah, you'll hit a plateau point where your degrees of yellow that you're increasing are in the fractional percentages rather than this animal, you know, sort of a beige yellow, and I took it to yellow yellow, and then I took it to bright yellow, and then I took it to highlighter yellow. Okay. Once you hit that highlighter yellow, it's, you know... This one's slightly more highlighter yellow than that one, which is slightly less highlighter yellow than that one. And that slightly differences, but the peak form is just variable expression at the end. Okay. And now I know we touched on it briefly, and I do want to touch on it again because it seems to be one of those things that's like a growing debate around it, and we can never escape it. And that's the lethal white gene in Jaguar. Um, 
Can you explain just briefly what a lethal white, what is meant by a lethal white gene? Because um, I do know it's in other animals besides jaguar carpet pythons and spider ball pythons and things like that. And uh, is there any way around it? Because there seems to be some people out there who are still clinging to hope that with certain breedings that they can get around it and have a full-blown living super form of that animal. Okay. Um, the lethal whites that we have, yeah, like you said, the jag, the spider, um, those animals, they're a little bit than like lethal white that you see in horses and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it's, based, it's based on the nature of the mutation. Um, the lethal white and jags and spiders is, and this is speculation on my part, but it's educated speculation. The pattern alterations that we're seeing mm -hmm. are most likely related to distribution of melanocytes in those animals. Okay. Now, it's not the fact that the melanocytes aren't being distributed right that's the problem. It's the fact that the system that distributes them also acts as a highway for other things, like the penetration of neurons into muscle tissues or the migration of stem cells for certain organisms to the right or organs to the right part of the body. Mm. So if that highway is shut down, then things aren't going to get to where they need to get to. Now, the reason the jags and the spiders come out all white is, you know, when you've got one copy, your highway system is broken, but it's not gone. So mm. you still get some pigmentation, but when the highway system is totally shut down, none of the pigment can travel through the animals, so they come out looking white. And that's okay. why they're, they're lethal and they're white. Um, you know, you've got other things in ball pythons. Uh, Kevin McCurley calls them pearls for the hidden gene Woma. Mm -hmm. Or he says that he's created pearls with other combinations. Yeah, I mean, it's the same type of thing. The super champagne ball python is also a pearl white animal. And again, it's because of a, something that's screwing up the distribution of pigment. And it's the transport system that would travel the pigment is supposed to travel other things. And it's those other things that make it lethal, it's pigment. Um, okay. The problem with, you know, the jag, you're not there's not really a way to fix it because mm -hmm. the mutation is inherent with this problem. You know, it's what gives the Jags neuro issues and spiders neuro issues. Mm -hmm. You can't uncouple the problem. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how many other morphs you try and fold back into it to recover it. There is no mutation for fix the fact that this super animal does not have a lung. <laughs> or it's the fact that this oh, animal there's... does not have the nerve. <laughs> there's no extra lung. lunged animal morph? I mean, crap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That makes sense. All right. So I, my very educated opinion on the matter is there will be no super jag. There will no never be a super spider. It's, it's lost cause and... People just need to accept that you breed jag to jag, you're going to have a mortality for those supers. You know, they might make right. it a an, a minute, an hour, a day, a week, but they're not going to have productive lives. 
Thank you. Okay, you so we, <laughs> we've done it. It's over. Stop asking us do you, <laughs> again. Do you, get, do you get the same kind of kind of like, uh, I don't know, for some reason with carpets, there seems to be people that cling to hope that somehow they're going to have the magic. <laughs> The magic combination is the same thing happened with ball pythons, or are they, or, or is that group pretty much accepted the fact that this doesn't work? So don't do it. We still see it in ball python. I mean, it at least with <laughs> at least with carpet people, you guys have accepted that <laughs> jags are neuro, and it's just the way it is, and that there is a super jag and it's lethal. With ball pythons. There's a substantial subset of the ball python hobby that does not believe super spider is lethal. They what? think wow. They, they, <laughs> they, think that, they think that spider is just a dominant trait and a super spider it looks identical to a spider. But then there are people who've hatched out these dead white Things. I was about to say, explain the dead white things that showed up. Where'd they come from? Yeah, and people just think they're flukes, you know. Oh, of and course. That, wow. People that say happens. that there are lines of spiders that show no neuro issue. And my response to that is the exact same one that Ralph Davis gave. If you think your spider's not neuro, you're not paying attention to your spider enough. Because <laughs> my spider has neuro tendencies. It doesn't mean they're all doing the Same field. thing with Jags. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's probably they the same thing it. you see with Jags. As yeah, far as you know. uh, they show it when they're stressed, or you know, some might not have it for a long time, and then all of a sudden it kicks in, and yep. you know, they all have. It. Yeah, you know, and I, you know, jags are a little, I mean, carpets are a little bit more diurnally active, so you guys right. probably mm -hmm. see the little tweaks and stuff during the day. Ball pythons are a lot more nocturnally active, and my guess is most ball python owners and breeders aren't sitting around looking at their snakes in the tubs at, you know, <laughs> 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning to, when, the, when the snake when is the out moving. moving. Yeah. You know, yeah. When you open your tub at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and your snake is basically asleep, huddled up in the back on its heat spot, well, of course it's not showing neuro. <laughs> <laughs> moving around at night, you're sitting there and then all of a sudden it'll flip itself over. And you know all of the neurotype. I mean, there's a lot of ball pythons that have some kind of neuro tweak. Um, Champagnes have it. Normal Woma has. I would I would not be surprised in the slightest if Hidden Gene Woma has it. Nobody talks about it, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, the Sable Morph is supposed to have it. Spot Nose, I have been told, has it. And again, it's you've got to watch when it happens. You know, I've got a Woma ball python who she's solid as a rock almost all night. But if I went up and looked in her tub right now, I guarantee you she'd be sitting there with her head cocked completely sideways, probably leaning on her water bowl. Wow. And she only right. does it at night. When she's like looking around and stuff, she like gets to the water bowl and just flips her head up against it and then sits there like that for a while and then gets back to normal. You know, and one of wow. her granddaughters that I have, every time I open the tub, the first thing she does is just a quick corkscrew, and then she's back to normal. Right. But she'll always I, I, use yeah. one corkscrew. I had no idea it was in it was in so many other morphs of ball python other than uh, spider. I thought that that was well, the only Owen, one affected. Uh, oh, and you're not paying attention, Mike. I to ball <laughs> to ball pythons. You're right. Hold on, wait. Let me go look at my ball python collection. I'll be back. I'm back. 
Nothing happened. <laughs> I have a question, and before we get into, uh, I got a. We do have a question from uh, from a listener, but we'll hit that when we get into Condros. But um, when you see, you see, like you take the spider, okay, two different species, same type of mutation. So is it possible that the same mutations that you see in ball pythons that you could see in other pythons? Yeah, it, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, I mean, yeah, okay. jag and spider may actually be the same gene. Um, now, I have seen, I can't remember if it was a jag to a wild-type ball or if it was a spider to a wild-type carpet. But somebody did that hybrid, and it didn't look exactly like I had expected, but it looked right. close enough for me to say, yeah, I believe that they're the same mutation. Somebody did Spider 2 Jag, and they got this one baby that I think was alive, and I think all it did was, like, narrow its way across its tub or something like that. It, it was... From what I what I know, it was horrific. So I don't know whether or not that was that, but I do know they combined the genes a little bit or tried to combine them, and they and they worked together to make some lethals well, I, and some horribleness. Yeah. <laughs> I think too too when you look at like I think of um, uh, blood pythons, you have a batik and you have uh, super batik. So batik has this crazy cryptic pattern similar to what you see in a zebra. And then when you breed a zebra to zebra, you get a patternless uh, snake. When you breed a to a batik, you get a patternless blood python. So I don't know. I just see like these these little things that pop up and seems to work the same way, same type of pattern, maybe a little bit different, I guess. But um, so yeah, and those are definitely possibilities again. Um, and one like one that would be an absolute. And I have gotten in so many arguments with people on forums about this. The albino gene. If it's a trimelanistic albino, so a T negative albino, right. then that mutation is an uh -huh. absolute. If it's T minus, it's T minus, and it doesn't matter what it is. So if I take an albino ball python and breed it to an albino Burmese python and an albino carpet python, and you know, give me what's something else that I mean, I can't even remember everything they've bred ball pythons to, but. Uh, albino blood python. As long as the right. blood, the berm, and the carpet are also T minus, then your hybrids right. are all going to be albinos. They're not going to be wow. double heads. They're not going to be weird, wild type looking things. They will all turn out albino. Now, again, that is making the assumption that we're dealing with true T minus albinos in all of these cases, and with you know things like blood python and Burmese python. There's a sub there's so many different weird albinos there um that some right. maybe kind of like well like lavender ball pythons they're pretty right. close to looking kind of white but not the same um you know sharp and call strain albinos and boas both of those it's hard to tell which one of those is the t minus i'm sure one of them is but the one is mm -hmm. just a really extreme t plus type but if you've got two T minuses, then you're going to get T minus hybrids out of it. Wow. Hmm. Okay, that's that's interesting. Hmm. Uh, 
<laughs> now, I hope everybody doesn't go and breed their, their albinos together. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not saying everybody should do it. I'm just saying it is possible. <laughs> I, that's, you know, that uh, was one. Oh, this, mm. this is for Jeff Goldblum moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, I got you. Everybody do it, so, you should do it. about whether or not they could. They didn't think about whether or not they should. No, I'm not saying should. you should. Think... I'm just saying you could. <laughs> can, can the, would the backlash on Morelia Python Radio be that bad if everybody started doing it that we would get blamed for starting this crazy <laughs> trend? So yeah, it could be. I got a question. Yeah, we need to watch Brandon that. Wheeler. Uh, the the question is, um, he says. What kind of difference has uh, have you seen in the health of a three or four gene clutch compared to say a single gene clutch? So I guess he's asking if the more genes you pack on, is there any kind of detriment to? Honestly, I guess I'm it depends on maybe the gene the genes. Gonna, yeah, it's going to depend on the genes. Um, you know, I'm I'm quite surprised sometimes with ball pythons that. We managed to stack as many genes on top of each other as we without hatching out complete and total train wrecks all the time. Because, you know, when you're wrecking five, six, seven different sets of genes, that's kind of crazy. Um, but there are some cases where it causes problems. Um, you know, if you breed spider pain, you get a lethal animal there. Now, there are some people who believe that that's because spider and champagne are allelic. Um, you know, Nick Mutton is of that opinion. And that's a possibility. Um, hmm. You know, I wouldn't deny it, but okay. at the same time, there are ways that we can check and prove that. It could just be that spider we know has problems, champagne we know has problems, so when you take problem A and problem B and put them together, you yeah. get a train wreck and it dies. <laughs> so depending on which way it works out, it could be either of those situations. Um, you know, there are other, you know, combinations that I wouldn't be surprised to find the same thing happens. So it depends on the gene is, I guess, the ultimate answer there. Sometimes, though, if you're just dealing with color problems, you know, mm -hmm. so albino with azanthic with hypo with caramel you know usually things like that aren't hyper essential so okay you're not causing something that's going to cause massive bodily harm but there could still be some repercussions i mean while obviously a, a shock white snake wouldn't do too well in the wild if you had a albino azanthic hypo in gotcha. captivity, it's not going to be doing too well because, you know, with a complete lack of all pigmentation, it's susceptible to things. Um, you know, I have noticed over time, I mean, old snakes will get, you know, strange things that you associate with old age, like cataracts and tumors and things. But I have found right. those. Albinos will get cataracts sooner than a wild type gotcha. snake will and that's because with no pigmentation in their eye they have less protection to their eye so even though it's you know 
if it's corn snake, it's just getting fluorescent light bulbs. That's still enough light that over time it's accumulating damage to the eye, which causes them to cataract up faster. Uh, okay, so that explains. I do know that albino alligators, after a certain point, have been said to go blind. I guess that would just be the damage to their eyes and forming of cataracts and stuff like that. So yeah, that's oh, and right. you know with alligators, those are generally kept outside because they're so exactly. large. Exactly. So they're getting yeah. full dose UV radiation from the sun with nothing to protect them. Um, I have uh, heard that some of the adult albino alligators that we're seeing are also starting to get skin cancer lesions for the same. They don't have any pigmentation in their body, so they're getting sunburned, which is then developing constantly and forms up into skin cancers. Because, you know, what I want is a, you know, a blind, pissed-off alligator coming at me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Give me mine. Did it come in pairs? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want 12. All right. <laughs> All right, so... Another for this year, for some reason, it seems to be the carpet python year of the chimera. And I know we've talked about it a couple of times on the show and totally messed and it up. screwed it up. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us exactly what is going on? What is a chimera? Uh, what, what is what's going on with that? Um, a chimera is one animal that has two separate genotypes. Um, and funny enough, I just had this exact same conversation with Nick. Um, mm -hmm. What happens is you know, when the embryos are forming in the mother, sometimes cells from one developing embryo will break off and migrate to another, or sometimes the two developing embryos will fuse and the cells then get shuffled around. So it's part embryo one and part embryo two. Um, there are even rarer cases where some of those cells will integrate into the embryo. So the baby then is part its own mother. Um, but it's two different genetic, two genetically different animals in one body. And it can be real mild and small, which, you know, can account for like animal that's, you know, mostly jag with a, like a thumbprint-sized wild-type pattern on it. You know, that could just be because one cell from its sibling managed to get into that embryo, and just that one cell generated that one small patch of normal tissue in the rest of the jaguar animal. Or it can be an animal that's half jaguar, half normal, or half zebra, half normal, because you got a full fusing of two embryos. Mm -hmm. And the cells just got all shuffled up like you put them in a blender and they all came back together in one animal. So with that thinking, technically, could you have, well, let me ask you this. What if it was an animal that was supposed to be a het? Could There could be a possibility, could or could not be het for, say, albino? Yes. Um, <laughs> and this is this is one of these things with uh, you know chimeric and you know paradox type animals that mm -hmm. that can get to be right. real sticky territory. Um, 
you know, like a lot of times we see it in ball pythons, you get this animal that looks like, you know, half albino and half normal. It's just got patches of albino all over it. Um, most of the time those, yeah, they come out of het type breedings mm -hmm. and uh -huh. that could be because your animal is suffering from a different condition or it could be because it's a paradox animal or a chimeric animal and if the tissue that makes up the gonads, the ovaries or the testes, is wild type tissue, then it's going to breed like a wild type. Oh my god! So now, you could have this the crazy-looking animal, and uh, just correct me if I'm wrong. You'd have this crazy, funky-looking animal, and it has the same pack, like packs the same punch as a wild type animal. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, <laughs> that would suck. <laughs> so yeah, all right, so like, that, that can create kind of that can create kind of a area there if people are like, man, I'm going to breed this and it's going to be the coolest thing because it's going to do this and that and the other. Well, you know, it might or it might not. I mean, it might just make normal looking snakes. Oh my because god, <laughs> you might think it's a het for albino because it's you know looks like 40, 50 percent albino, so it'll breed. It's an albino uh -huh. like it was a het. Yeah. But if the, you know, if the gonads are wild type, then it's just going to breed like a wild type all day long. Wow. That would right. suck. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think that's something that some people so, that people need to think of as they move forward with these kind of things. I mean, yeah, they look fantastic. They could throw for a curveball in the future. Wow. Okay. Especially if you're going to go babies and you're saying that, uh, yeah, that could be... Oh, that could be Pandora's box. So, huh. with with paradox in particular, again, something that seems to be happening all over the world of Morelia this past season is this something that's predictable, or is this just some like? So, for instance, when I say predictable, is is if you have a certain pair and you pair them up and they throw a paradox animal, could you, in theory, throw that pair together again? following year and produce a paradox animal or is it just the luck of the draw this is a delicate question no. <laughs> um, okay I do not know <laughs> there is there are a couple of strange morphs in bonds that look to be stable paradox forming animals okay um, but I still think further investigation needs to go into them some. It, the nature behind what's causing it, it, mutation that basically governs how your chromosomes get sorted mm -hmm. within cells and stuff. So over the course of a couple generations, that could have bad side effects where you're basically breeding sterile animals because the chromosomes are right as you're forming sperm and egg in the animal. Because if you can't sort your chromosomes right in the cellular level, and that's why some of your cells look normal and some of them look albino and some of them look fire and some of them look black-eyed Lucy, that could be the basis there, so it's something to watch for. Um, but outside of those couple of strange morphs and ball pythons, mm -hmm. I do not know of any case where 
paradoxing is stably heritable. Now, you may have a pair that constantly tends them, but my guess would be the reason it's doing that is because one of the animals in that pair, again, has some type of genetic issue going on. Yeah, it just and is. that's what's that's what's contributing to it. Okay. Okay. Hmm. So if I bred a paradox um, albino to a paradox albino, I may not get a clutch of paradox albinos. Correct. <laughs> no. Or, you know, but then the flip side is you might because you might. one of those paradox albinos, the parent of it, could have that trait that the parent is stably throwing them out because there's something parent and they gave that same trait to their offspring. One of the kids. So their offspring could do it too. But there's no guarantee there. Oh my God! You could breed a paradox albino to a paradox albino and get nothing but normal carpal python. <laughs> oh my God! Genet genetics is a f all right. Well, this is wow. <laughs> That's what makes it fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean this um, is great. <laughs> so one of the things that uh i wanted to talk about was you you i you had sent us an email about this specific question but me and Owen were talking in a while back mm -hmm. this um crazy looking diamond python popped out of a clutch and um it, it came from a loose pattern diamonds and i'm not sure if it's reduced pattern to reduce pattern um but it's this piebald looking thing that was produced by uh, he's in canada his name's michael aslam um, and I, my question was, is it possible for a morph to be produced when neither animals are gene carriers, I guess, meaning what are the chances of something like a pied or something like that, that type of gene like that, just popping out randomly? It can happen. Um, okay. Just the statistical odds of it happening randomly are extremely low um, especially in so, like a, something like, like a pied where again depending on where you fall on the spectrum is pied recessive or is pied a the, the super form of a cryptic incomplete dominant where you get that basically homozygous visual out mm -hmm. that that is almost exceeds to the point of not possible. I'm not going to say impossible, but it's it's highly improbable, um, just naturally occurring. Now, if there's something that could induce the mutation, you know, if you know the the parents have been exposed to chemicals, or if the mother was exposed to something she was incubating that damaged the developing fetuses, that could cause you know a visual animal to come up. But you, again, when you do something like that, it doesn't tend to just hit one spot. You're going to be tend to damaging larger patches of DNA overall. So you tend to kind of more chaos going on across the whole clutch. You know, if you if you run a mother through an X-ray while she's carrying eggs, hmm. it's generally not good for the eggs. It's not good. Yeah, that's, yeah. You're damaging, you're damaging all of the eggs, and mm -hmm. you know, I've heard people doing it, and it's the entire clutch because basically barbecued the inside of mom while they were developing. Um, Ouch. Yeah. But okay. if, if, the mute, if the mutagen is at a low enough insult, then yeah, you could hatch something weird out. 
Um, okay. We tend to see spontaneous mutations. They most likely dominant or incomplete dominant. Just has one small nick in one copy of the gene, but not in the other copy, and it gets expressed because it's a dominant or an incomplete dominant type. So you'll see one just randomly pop out. Um, and again, it only it tends to be a one-off. You don't tend to have the weird thing, that weird mutation happen four or five times in a clutch. So if you breed something and you pop out four or five animals with a new phenotype, odds are that your parents are carrying the genes. If you breed something and one thing pops out different, that could be spontaneous mutation. Or, yeah, the parents could both be het for a recessive trait that you couldn't see. Or they're het, you know, they're incomplete dominant and you didn't know it, and now you're seeing a super form. Um, gotcha. And the little that I've seen about the reduced patterns is that it does tend to travel at least in a dominant type manner, where if you breed a reduced pattern to a normal diamond, about half of your clutch is going to look reduced pattern. Yeah. But, that was, okay. you know, my couple of minutes just looking that topic first came up, and I haven't dug deeper into the reduced pattern diamonds. Okay. Hmm. So what are your thoughts? Do you think that that, I mean, again, just your educated guess, do you think that that is a piebald, or do you think that that is uh, a, a chimera, or what, what, what are your thoughts on what's going on with that? Um. Okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to caveat here that this is pure speculation, and I I really Correct. don't want to have <laughs> right, all of yeah. the Morelia community coming after me tomorrow saying, <laughs> "Well, dude, that genetic super freak <laughs> said this, or it wasn't that," and you know, we want his head. This well, is, that, uh, that may happen regardless, but yeah, it may. Yeah. At yeah, least I mean. I'm putting I'm putting the qualifier here now, so nobody can say that I didn't. If, it, it's okay. They want my head every faster, day. That's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, they want my head every week, so it's okay. You're, yeah. you, it's, we'll it's send normal. them to Owen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He'll be garbage. Um, it's normal. <laughs> looking at the animal, especially looking at it post-shed, mm -hmm. there are some things that could indicate that it could be a pie. Um, you know, reduced pattern jag, you know, when you get het for piebaldism and other animals, there tends to be a slightly altered patterning in them. Um, right. So you see that sort of disruption in it. So I, I could see that as being a potential. Um, like the original clutcher, it almost looks like both of the animals in the center there may be showing the trait, but it's hard to tell if what I'm seeing is really just that first animal flip-flopped underneath itself and the head of the second animal is lying in such a way that it's not really what I'm seeing and I'm all the weird looking thing is the first animal and the first animal alone. Um, but if there was more than one, again, I'd be inclined to say that you're, you're more likely for this to then be a true morph. Um, on the other hand, also at that post-shed picture, especially looking at the head and the way mm -hmm. some of these areas are meeting up, yeah, I, I have to consider the fact that it could be chimeric. Um, 
know, look when I've looked at pictures of neo reduced matter diamonds, they tend to have that sort of more golden color to them, whereas the normal diamonds are that darker patterning. So if you right. look at the half of that animal, it almost looks like it's altering normal reduced, normal reduced, normal reduced. Then you've got just a big chunk of something going on, and it's mostly normal towards the back with a little bit of that glue coming in. Um, so it, it could right. be chimeric. Um, and another thing about it that sort of weirds me in terms of pieds is one of the pied phenotypes is that you tend to see more of the piebald character towards the tail end as towards the head end. And in this animal, you've kind of got the flip-flop. You're seeing more of the pied pattern, the, the pied expression and the disruption towards the head end. So that aspect of it makes me think that this might just be some weird fluke freak type. But gotcha. You know, there are indications that it could go either way. And you know, as I mentioned in that email, really the best thing to do and always the best thing to do in these situations is breed it out, prove it out. Because mm-hmm. right. that's how you're gonna find out. And you know, I don't know what the sex of the animal is, but you've got a couple of years, even if it's a male, because you guys don't tend to breed at you know six months of age the way ball python breeders do. No, <laughs> no, we um, don't. Yeah. But I, I know there are other people out there that have the reduced pattern diamonds. So I would assume people can take their reduced pattern diamonds and start up and look for those clutches to produce similar things. Because if, you know, person A pairs their reduced and person B pairs their reduced and person C pairs their reduced and all three of those clutches also pop out something like this, the odds that everybody's getting the same weird additional side out of nowhere is going to be going down. (laughs) Right. 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 Oh. I'm staring at my reduced pattern diamond right now as she's curled up ranch. I hate you for <laughs> that. Years away I hate from you for that thing. <laughs> nice. Yeah, they're yeah. beautiful snakes. Okay. Um, one other one that I wanted to hit on in particular uh, before we do some chondro talk is uh, ocelot jag. Now, mm. you know, I'll give this uh, real quick for people that don't know what the ocelot jag is um this combo to date well actually this year um it seems that the ocelot was separated from the jag so what happened with this is is that you had uh, mike Curtin who was over here in the states and then you had paul harris who was over there in the uk and they both hatched out the same type of mutation um and basically uh, it's kind of like this crazy, gives it this crazy linky pattern and, uh, you got like this peppering on the sides and, you know, you got like these ocelots that come down in the saddles. Um, until this year, it wasn't able to be separated from the JAG mutation. Um, mm-hmm. is that, is that something that is a thing or is this just finally the odds just happened that it was produced where the ocelot gene showed itself without the jag. Did I, did I ask that right? I mean, you know what I mean? Huh. <laughs> um, maybe. I'm rambling. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
what you're describing sounds a lot like linkage, where okay. Okay. you have two settings, but they're so close to each other on the chromosome that they they tend to move around together. So when you've okay. got when you've got your if you go way back to high school biology, if you remember meiosis and how when the cells are dividing down to your gametes, you have the crossover events which cause chromosomal rearrangements. Mm -hmm. Okay. Those, hap those happen randomly. And, you know, if two genes far apart from one another on the same room, the odds are they're going to get separated because one of them is going to get transferred over to the sister chromosome when you're doing that crossover event and split apart. But if the, the closer the two genes get to each other, the odds that you get that chromosomal arrangement that separates them is gonna go down. So if the ocelot gene and the jag gene are, you know, in proximity to each other, then they'll move around mostly as one. So your ocelot jag will tend to throw a lot of other ocelot jags, but there's still a point where you can event that separates them and you will be able to produce then a jag that isn't ocelot and an ocelot that isn't jag. But it's going to happen at low frequency. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, that, and when we talk about genes allelic, what does, what does that, what's the tech, tech, technical definition for that um <clears throat> allelic is that's uh, basically different of the same gene um and i don't know that you have too many of these in carpet in fact i don't know if you have any in carpet pythons um you, know, you see a ton of them in ball pythons again ball pythons they're they are the absolute genetic freaks of the reptile world mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> right. you know, you've got you've got the blue-eyed Lucy complex and the Lucy complex, uh, the yellow belly complex, where you have multiple mutations to the same gene, but each mutation is a little bit different. Um, one of the ways that I've described this in the past is if you think of think of the gnome as like a deck of cards, okay? But it's just a single okay. string of it's just a single string ace two three four jack queen king. Um, okay. And it's only one suit. Okay. And that's your wild type gene. So if your normal suit is spades, then you change the spade into a heart, that's one mutation. Now, if okay. you've got three of spades and the three of hearts, you know, now you've got albino. The three of hearts is for albino. Three of spades is wild type. You know, then you look at the the lesser ball python. And that's going to be the seven of hearts. But then you've also got Mojave, which is the seven of diamonds. And you've got Phantom, which is the seven of clubs. And you have Special, which is seven ampersand. <clears throat> you know, each mutation is different, but it's all at the same, it's of the same gene. It's just a different type of mutation of the same gene. So some of them are going to be more extreme. Some of them are going to be less extreme. Okay. Hmm. 
All right, that makes sense. It does. Very cool. Um, I do have another question that um, I, when you, when we just started talking about that, the only thing that I could think of, and I, it's just just my guess, that you have a caramel gene, and then you have this red gene, and they seem to sort of similar, um, a little bit different, um, but they sort of have like this red hypoey look with the red gene in carpets. As they get older, they tend to lose that, um, whereas the caramel uh, seems to, uh, you know, uh, get more of this golden color, especially if it's uh, super version of it. Mm -hmm. um, but we are starting to see that some of the red stuff is holding on to uh, that look into adulthood. So my, and my, uh, the reason I'm asking this question is because I'm working on a project in carpets that's sort of my quote unquote dinker project is I have this melanistic IJ. And with this IJ, um, when they were born, um, they were normal looking babies. Uh, but as she aged, uh, she gained melanin. So I think of something like the IMG gene in Boas. Um, mm -hmm. is, is that, what, what is that exactly? Is that something that, I mean, is that, is, is that a recessive? What is that considered? It's, well, it's going to depend. Um, it depends on how the gene just expressed and the nature mm -hmm. of the mutation. So right. it'd be a matter of how you breed it out. If half of her offspring show it, that's a dominant or an incomplete type trait. If you breed her out and none of her offspring have it, but then you breed her offspring together and some of them show it, you're looking at a recessive. Um, right. And well, it's hard It's hard to tell just off of an initial basis without having a lot of breeding done into it you can kind of try and look to other animals and see what's out there that could correlate. Um, right. Because you see, you see melanism in all kinds of, you know, a panther is a melanistic leopard or a melanistic jaguar. Um, mm -hmm. you, know, you have melanism in, in dogs and wolves and coyotes. You have melon cats, you have them in mice and rats. But in each of those cases, the melanism behaves differently. Um, in dogs and wolves and coyotes, the melanism is a dominant trait. So it's just a single gene and that gives you the black. But in mice and rats, it tends to be recessive. Um, in fact, there, te there are multiple types of melanism, but they're recessive traits. So hmm. I guess maybe the better question would be this. If, if it's some Hatch, is that like predictable trait? Not always. Um, okay. Not always. Okay. It, I just remember it when I was talking to Nick, he was telling me that if it's something that happens like that, where they get it as they age, that's something that you really don't want, you know, because it's not as, maybe it's not as, is easily marketed or maybe it's something that's not as easily as predicted 
to predictable. Um, yeah, it, it's not as easily predictable, and it's not. It's probably not as easily to mar easy to market. But you know, if if you can breed it out, you know, how will you know if the baby's carrying? What you'll have to hang on to them. And you know how yeah. long it took your founder to color up, so you know how long you'll have to hold on to those animals to be able to tell, okay, all of her offspring did this, so it's a dominant trait. Her offspring, you know, half of her offspring did this, so it's a dominant trait. If I breed two of her other, and I might get a super form, or none of her offspring did this, I breed them back together and wait again another two, three, four years, and some of those babies get it as a recessive trait. Now you know the time frame, and you can start. Then you could start marketing them. Of okay, I took a melanistic animal and bred wild type. These are melanistic, but realize when you breed them together, you're going to have to hold on to them for, you know, a year or two years, or people are just going to have to buy, with the understanding of I don't know which one of these is going to melanize up. One of them might. You might get the melanin. It almost kind of falls into the chondro territory there, where yes, you know, people <laughs> people buy chondros, and you know, you get this little red or yellow worm, and you don't know what the hell it's going to do, because right, it's a red and yellow worm, and you don't know what it's going to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So you, you can. Oh man, I hope I can sell them like you do way. chondros. Yeah, <laughs> they just they just roll up and be like, "Yep, I want that one. That's the parents. Give me that." Yeah, but it might turn into a green snake. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> um, uh, we did have a uh, a question in our chat room real quick, and I I didn't want to skip over it. Um, do you think that breeding for temperament is a real thing? Do you think that there are mean, um, genes? Yes, I do think breeding for temperament is a real thing. Um, actually, I know breeding for temperament is a real thing. Um, there was a, m a massive study done in Novobirsk, Siberia. With, they've done it with fox and with rats. And I think it's still ongoing, actually. Doing it since the 60s. Um, they started with wild foxes and basically went both ways with it. And they did the same thing with the rats. They go to the cages and, you know, the ones that are friendly and nice, they take out and they breed those. Two. And then the ones that are nasty and mean, they and breed together. And they keep doing this generation after generation after generation. And they now have foxes that are as cuddly and playful as you know, your Jack Russell Terrier Poodle, Doberman, whatever that you've got at home that will hop on your lap and be a lap dog. Um, and they have foxes that you open the door to the shed where they live, where they're kenneled, and all of them just start going nuts, throwing themselves against the walls of their cages, trying to tear your face. You oh, nice. have rats wow. where you go and you put your hand <laughs> in the cage and the rat comes over and snuggles you and rubs its face against your hand and wants to be affectionate. And then you have rats where if you put your hand in the cage and you're not wearing a heavy chainmail gauntlet, you will pull back a bloody stub because the rats in you know have been selected for aggression are insane. So wow. yes, you can you can breed for temperament. Now 
you know, I've heard it argued reptiles are totally different than mammals. Yes, reptiles are different than mammals. At the same time, it's a selective pressure game. That's what it is. We can use this selective pressure to push for, you know, the black and highlighter yellow jungle carpets. We can use this selective pressure to pick for more and more reduced patterning on things. You know, there's guys who've bred, you know, what was it? You guys just had a hunter on. They've got a jungle that they've selectively bred to the point where it almost looks like a jag, but it's not. Mm -hmm. You know, you, yeah. if you can select for visual traits that way, you can select for behavioral traits that way. It may take longer, yeah, but you should be able to select for a more docile type of animal. <clears throat> right. Or a more psychotic type of animal if you're... That that's that's my mission. <laughs> my mission is to breed the the most evil carpet pythons ever created. So you know, in, in a way, we've been doing that kind of thing. You know, um, again, we've been doing it with carpets. I mean, yeah, carpet pythons are not normally rat eaters in the wild, but right, you know, here in the U.S., you know, some people will tell you they have just a bitch of a time, babies start mm -hmm. but there are people who have babies that will take rats from minute one and you know it, we have got some bloodlines that you know the baby that takes a rat from the get-go is the baby that's going to be more likely to grow mm -hmm. and be up to breeding side and then be breeding next so give its genes whatever those genes are that make it prone to taking a baby rat right from the get-go without balking it's going to pass those genes on to its offspring. And, you know, so we're starting to purify in the direction of animals that will take rats as a normal prey and instantly recognize them instead of looking for skinks as their first prey item. Right. I can uh, agree with you 100% because I tell you what, um, the coastal clutches that I've had, um, over the past three years uh, or jungle uh, clutches, which are more established in captivity in the United States, boom, right away. Took food, no issues, no problems. But the dolphins, <laughs> oh, that's a whole nother story, uh -huh. which are not as established in the United States. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with you 100%. Awesome. So. So ahead, I know you mentioned a little bit ago about chondro genetics um, and they seem to be very hit or miss in producing either, you know, a crazy high yellow, a melanistic, a blue one or a combination of them all or just a normal green snake out of the same clutch and the same parents. And they're all red babies or yellow babies. Um, why do you think that it this is the case when it's so hard to peg down uh, the green tree python genetics. Well, um, I think there's probably multiple factors involved. Um, I think you're dealing well. One, the first is for years they've been you know crossing all these different localities. Yeah. Which now, now it's come very very much light that. These are different species in some cases. So, right. 
you're dealing with hybrid genetics here to an extent, which is going to throw a little bit of a curve in. Um, right. But even, you know, even in some species, you have population genetics. So you've yeah. got pockets. And what comes with that is I think we've got, you've got a, in each of these animals, in each of these populations, and in each of these species, you've got genome that because of their history evolutionarily is fairly robust and resistant to change. Okay. While, and this is going to sound contradictory, so I may have to. No, just go for a it. Couple of times to me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> while, while the genome is robust and resistant to change, it's, it has a lot of polygenetic capability. Mm-hmm. So yet you've got all of these things that could align to you. Yeah, give you a yellow. Okay. You've got to all of those genes. You, you've it's yellow. It's it's not a case of like I hypothesized with the jungle earlier, where I said you know it's just four genes. We'll call it yeah. four genes, and three of them are dominant. In this case, you're probably dealing with a dozen or more genes, and they're not just a synth- Mendelian fashion, of, you know, recessive, dominant, good, go, happy. It's if you have gene A in the presence of gene B in the absence of gene C mm-hmm. with a mutant copy of gene D, then you go. And if you have, but if you have that perfect combination, you're not going to see yellow. You know, and then the same thing with the blues. And it's hard to purify those things because then you go back and fall into the linkage thing that I talked about with right. Ocelot. You know, if A and B are, are not linked, B and C, but A and C are linked, it's hard to unlink A from C in a position where you've got B mm-hmm. to, you know, start pushing for it. So that's where that, that robust resistant genome comes from, even though you've got a lot of possibilities to choose from. To get it all lined up right is really difficult because there's just so much variability across the genome that it more pushes towards a default no state. Okay. That makes sense. It, but, it's one yeah, of these things I, that I visualize in my head, but it's harder to articulate. <laughs> Okay, that's that. No, I, 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 I get it. So, do you think it is a pretty good possibility that the reason we're seeing such crazy phenotypes is simply because all the chondros or most of the chondros in the country are crosses or hybrids, and uh, what we're seeing is more of like an incomplete kind of recessive gene melting pot in the chondros when it comes to traits? Yeah, um, I guess with, like with a lot of the, for like, they call it the designer chondros. Yeah. Yeah, I think you see a lot of that crazy stuff because yeah, they're, they're, they're like you said, they're hybrids or they're crosses between populations. Um, and each population individual, you know, has has got an evolutionary history that they've sort of purified 
their genes for what is, works best for that little local environment that they have. And okay. then you cross, and, you know, you cross one population with another population, the genes being purified for each population are different. And so you're going to see, in some cases, conflicting expressions because what works here doesn't necessarily work there. What works for the high elevation doesn't necessarily work for the low elevation, doesn't really work for the heavier vegetation versus the lighter vegetation. So you get, you get a mishmash of different genes, and that's what gives you that crazy variability. Okay. Makes sense. So uh, is there... Any other reptile off the top of your head that fits in that category? Um, like like the like the chondros where they come out a certain color or or they as they mature just you have no idea what the hell they could turn into. I mean to an extent, yeah. Um, you know, goes sort of. You know, they they can be hit or miss with what you get now crested geckos seem to turn over so fast with their generation times that i think mm -hmm. you know the the variability that we're starting to see crested geckos through selective breeding I, I think that same level is attainable with chondros right but you know you've got you've got a longer generation time with chondros because it takes you know again takes two three four years before before you can start breeding a condor, you can start flipping crested gecko at the end of the year in cases. So, you know, you get these different chunks How come... that you can shake out between them. Right. Um, right. In terms of pocket genetic type things, uh, gray banded kings. Yeah. They're, those are, you know, a great example, you know, each location of gray band has got its own kind of traits and characteristics. Yeah, and banding and stuff yeah, like banding, that. Banding, pinstriping, uh -huh. stuff like that. You can, you know, if you breed between them, you know, the gray bands aren't quite as purified amongst themselves. So breeding them together, you just you start getting sort of homogenous looking mutts. But at the same time, you get some crazy stuff. I mean, those weird zigzag backs, those are genetically, they're generics. They're a mix of a bunch of uh, ones. You've got the the one that are, instead of being gray, gray they're more of a tawny color. Right. Uh, and again, so that, you know, that comes from mixing genetics between different populations the same way people are mixing genetics between different populations of chondros. Sure, and it's it's weird is that you're talking about populations of gray bands where sometimes those different pockets are like only separated by like a road or something like that. I mean, like they're right on top of each other. So, but you know, it it seems like you know, well, we you know, it's just a road. But exactly. You know, when, you think about, when you think about the you know, yeah, it's just a road to us, and we can skip and jump a road. But you know, we can see the car coming, and we can outrun the car in most cases. <laughs> Plus, the car isn't trying to the car isn't trying to run us over in most cases. A snake, right? Car, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a snake selected pressure against them. You know, a road yeah. is like a mountain range to a snake in some cases. True. 
I think I think a, a question would be like, why in some species of python are you seeing, uh, you know, like you take the ball python for example, you see so many different morphs in 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 that species, whereas in other pythons you really don't see that same type of thing. Is it just the is it just the influx amount of animals that are coming into the United States and the amount of people that are working with them is does that have something to do? Um, that may have some of it. I'm more inclined to think that that um, that actually more goes back to the natural environment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know ball pythons have a pretty big range and it's not there isn't a lot of selective pressure in that range. So, I mean, yeah, there's there's some degree of selective pressure on them, so evolution has driven them to a certain point, but there's a lot of flexibility in where they live, how they get around, you know, a lot you know, the tons of wild binos and mutations out of the wild with ball pythons. Well, I mean, think about where ball pythons live in the wild. They live in the bottom of a termite mound most of the year. Mm -hmm. So when you're living in the bottom of a termite mound, it doesn't matter if you're brown and tan, white and yellow, striped bed, web pattern. You could be neon blue for all that mattered because you're in a hole in the ground and nothing can see you down there. Right, underneath something that's about the thickness of concrete. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're good. Yeah. So. Now, you know, when you then look at the chondro environment, it's got a much higher selective pressure in it. The, the pressures are a lot stricter. So, you know, a, an albino chondro is going to stick out like a sore thumb. Mm, right. You know, yeah. Right. Now, the, albino, the albino chondros, they're bright yellow. Right. Now, when you're yellow and six inches long, you know, you can curl up against you know a mushroom that's yellow or a bromeliad flower that's yellow or an orchid that's yellow and you can hide because you blend in when you're only six inches long or eight inches long but when you're two and a half feet long and bright yellow you're not blending in anymore because you know a little yellow orchid flower yeah fine that looks normal a gigantic yellow orchid flower no doesn't look right. Yeah. And the behavior rate of I'm going to just sit out on this in a tree among the leaves. Now you've just got a yellow splash in the middle of the trees. So your selective pressure with chondros being out in the open, very limited environmental niche where they're in, that pushes them away from having high frequency of mutations. Because anytime one of them pops up, it gets killed. It gets turned into a prey item real fast. So you're, you're purging those mutations out of the gene pool faster than they can be gained in the gene pool to turn up later in collections. Okay. <clears throat> now, the, it, there were some wild-type conjures that did, or are a certain color when they become adults like the canaries is that just because yes. of i guess there are something big and yellow where they live that helps them blend in or something like that 
Yeah, and, I would assume. You know, okay. Yeah, that that would be the assumption. I mean, I haven't, you know, obviously having not been to that region. Canary so, Islands, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> having not been to, around the Canaries, the Corfu's, you know, I, I can't specifically say, but you know, this is this is the educated hypothesis theory is you know if if the adults stably maintain yellow in those types of populations then there's a reason that they can stably maintain that which you know that yeah, then your indication would be you know maybe there is a tree there where leaves are more yellowy green than they are that vibrant leafy green or yeah maybe it's, there is a giant yellowing plant or maybe there's you know a moss that grows on the trees that's yellow in color so they blend in better um okay Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't that uh, they they there's something about a moth in England or something like that that was like some of them were black and some of them were white, and then depending on what color the trees were in certain areas, those ones got eaten versus the other guys. So, yeah, the peppered I, moth, yes, yeah. that's peppered the, moth. Thank the quintessential, you, yeah, the quintessential evolution selection of the fish. Yeah, they're the majority of them are white, a little bit of black flecking. And in a normal forest, got the lichen, they blended in fine. And then the Industrial Revolution hit, and people were pumping coal dust out into the air as they were burning it. And the soot was coating the trees and turning the trees black. And right. when you're bright white with little black speckles, you stick out like a sore thumb black tree. But then right. the melt form of the moth, which happens in very, very low frequency, well, a black moth blends in really well with a tree that's stained black. So then the black moths started to become more and more and more prominent in the population and shifted the, the population dynamic. Uh, and then we've seen the reverse happening as, you know, clean burning went into effect and gr more green laws went into effect. The trees now are reverting back to a more moss and lichen coated nature and we're seeing pepper moth shift back to that white flecked pattern and less and less of the melanistic ones appearing. Right. Okay. Now the one thing is that a lot of chondro breeders try to have, I guess, um, red dominant animals in the babies, I guess it's just, they want the clutch to throw a lot of red babies. Cause I think the, they tend to go hand in hand with really nice coloration. So, um, <clears throat> What would you, when would you consider how many breedings for it to be required for a chondro to be considered a red dominant animal? I mean, how many clutches would they have to have for, of mostly red babies before you consider that to be a trait of theirs? Um, this is another one where I'm probably going to piss off a lot of people. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, That's fine. <laughs> I guess it, it depends on what you believe with regard to the red, yellows, and chondros. Um, I subscribe to the theory that red and yellow are Mendelian, and that red uh, is probably the derived ancestral trait, and yellow is a, it's a more recently occurring mutation that is recessive. So... If you accept that, then you could prove an animal to be red dominant in a single breeding if you did the breeding right. <clears throat> because basically what you would be doing is breed 
an Anifro's reds to a Neo that was yellow, because if it's yellow, then it's a recessive. So you're breeding a recessive to a dominant wild type, essentially. Mm -hmm. If you get a clutch of all reds, and you know your animal is a red dominant type. Because it'd be like breeding a wild type to an albino. The wild type is the red, the albino is the yellow. You breed an albino to a wild type, all the babies look wild type. They still carry the albino gene, but they look wild type. So if you breed an animal that you know is red to an animal is yellow, if all the babies throw red, you know that that red animal is red dominant. Okay. Now, if you breed that red to a yellow and half the babies are red and half the babies are yellow, you're dealing with essentially a head animal. It carries the one red gene and one yellow gene. And that's why half the babies come out red because you get the pairing of red-yellow and half of them come out yellow because that's the pairing of yellow-yellow. Okay. Okay. It's conjured genetics is somewhat beyond me, so... <laughs> well, I guess it's still, still a mystery. I guess I'm sure I'm going to piss off a fair people in the condor community because not not everybody subscribes to the red is Mendelian, red and yellow are Mendelian. Um, right. And you know that's fine. I I just you know, I'm not going to be an absolute condor breeder either. But just the evidence that I have seen and the things that I read point that way to me. You know, if somebody could show me logical arguments against it, I'll hear it. But at the same time, right. I, I would like logical arguments if you want to argue with me, not, I don't think so because you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, but that's, I, that's a good I, argument. I, and I understand I think, uh, people think I'm stupid. But <laughs> How dare oh, you man, come that, at them come with on. facts and science? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> come on. Oh, that's funny. Um, I guess the last uh, topic we're going to hit on for the night to re well, they're not really Morelia anymore, but still in our, still in our little group, Morelia. So Molina, uh, there's kind of close. There's a there's a genetically um, there's a pretty cool thing that happened with the Tanabar scrub python, where the normal phenotype um, is uh, well, what has happened is now the double recessive of patternless and exantic has now become the normal uh, phenotype of what you see. Um, some people theorize that it's to do with the environment changing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you have any thoughts on what could cause this to happen in the wild? And at what point does the double recessive become the normal and the pattern, pattern xantic become the double recessive phenotype? Does, does that happen in any other species where they just flip like that? Um, the, they don't like flip the, the patterned xanthic animals. The right. gene is still the, the gene for pattern and for z normal coloration, that xanthic yellow coloration. Those are still dominant genes. But right. you know, as you noted, yeah, there's there's the, the tan bar population is is the double recessive, and um, I, I my inclination, yeah, is that that is active pressures down to the environment. Um, 
and you see this uh, you see this in a lot of places um, and a lot of different species it's it's just how the species is adapting to changes in the environment and changes in where it lives uh, there's Going back to the mention of melanistic mice that I made earlier, there are actually populations of melanistic mice that live on volcanic cinder cones out, you know, in the Mojave Desert. And the reason that they live on cinder cones is because a black mouse blends really well with the black volcanic rocks. And it's a recessive trait. Know, and it's right. purified around around the, the cinder cones because if you know if a normal colored mouse, which is sort of a dun brown, gets into the volcanic area, well, it's going to stick out like a sore thumb. Now, if it does manage to get in there to breed and it's carrying the black gene, then its babies half of the babies will be black and half the babies won't, and the half that aren't are going to get eaten, and the black ones will. You know, progress on. You get to the point where basically everything is black. Um, there's a couple species of rat snake you see in this, where depending on the environment, you know, their colors and patterning are different. Um, rattlesnakes. You know, there are rattlesnake populations where, you know, when they're on basically pink sandstone, the dominant color of the rattlesnake is sort of pinched tone. You know, then you move to a more scrubland area. You've got slate fields and things, and same species of rattlesnake, but it's gray and black, modeled to match into those slate fields. And gotcha. My inclination is that's what you see with these scrub pythons. Is there's been an environmental change where you're finding them that the the best color and pattern to have is to be solid gray and blend in versus you know that chop pattern with the yellows and the flex and the browns that would stick out like a sort of thumb there hmm. and depending so, on the size of the population and the environment you know it can be just little localized things like the mice or the different populations of rattlesnakes or rat snakes or it can be a broad spectrum type of thing because you've got a whole a whole biome change or something Interesting. Gotcha. So if I, if I, I'm going to think this out loud, so it might sound stupid, but the idea is, is that um, because the environment changed. So technically if you have, uh, let's, I'll use a, I don't know, a carpet. And if all of a sudden they're stuck in an environment where they camouflage in and, and develop green, let's say, or something that's out of what they normally would do. Um, the thinking is, is that the ones that did sort of camouflage in with the environment would survive and those recessive traits would then become the dominant because if you take an albino and breed it to an albino, then you're going to get all, all albinos. So um, the fact that the ones that, um, the ones that that don't develop that they all die off and then there that's how that this tent scrub uh well the theory is that's how this one of the theories is this is how this tannenbar scrub uh developed into this patternless gray animal which i believe you see the same thing in blue tongue skinks so that's what would lead me to believe that's it's the environment because 
tannin bar, uh, blue tongue skinks, I think look the same way. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and it's it's the lo it's the location of where they are. Um, and I think the the only thing that I would not so much a disagreement is just more of a, a terminology thing, right? That it, the patternless semantic becomes dominant because people would think dominant in the genetic form. Just say that it becomes prevalent because your population gotcha. is is shifting that way. The gene itself isn't changing, but the makeup of the population, yeah, is changing because, like you said, you are now breeding animals that are homozygous for the recessive trait because that's the thing that can survive because that's the only thing that blends in. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So that would be called, what did you say it was again? How would you phrase I that? Just, just, I, I would say the, the recessive traits become prevalent in the population. Prevalent. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The same The same way Owen was talking about with the, the moths. The melanistic gotcha. ones became prevalent in the pop, more prevalent in the population because the trees were all turning black. Yeah. Gotcha. So they, they, they become a greater population. Science hmm. is so cool. <laughs> so cool, man. <laughs> I love it. Genetics yeah, are the fun things. All right. So we do have the final closing questions, which are sometimes the toughest ones, even though we went through this whole genetics thing. And that is, uh, if you could keep any reptile without restrictions of law, price, anything like that, what would it be and why? Um, I think I would go with the turtle frog. The hell is a turtle frog? I'm pretty <laughs> you just made it up. So. No, no, I didn't make it up. It's it's this really weird Australian frog, and that's that's probably one of the reasons that I would want to keep it is because they're just so bloody weird looking. It it basically looks like what you would picture a turtle without a shell looking like. What the hell is that? <laughs> I'm going to have to Google this. <laughs> Jesus, Google. I just did. It's a horrible creature. God, kill no, it with fire. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're the strangest looking little bastards you're ever going to see. And that's it's part of what? the reason I think they're so cool. What the but hell the other is that? I want to do it. <laughs> the other reason I would want it is I think it'd be awesome to try something completely new like that into the hobby. You know, they're an Australian species. They're. Yeah, I mean, we know how Australia's got a complete lockdown on everything these days, but I think it'd be it'd be cool to bring something new like that. Oh my god, he's exactly correct. It looks like someone ripped a turtle out of its shell and like covered it in goo. I mean, oh my god. But all right, whatever. So yeah, I just hey, I'm weird. I just yeah, what I, I'm not. You do you. That's fine. So. <laughs> Christ. Um, That's cool. All right. And it's so freaky looking. It's awesome. But um, now if you could go herping in any place in the world, what would it be and what would you be hoping to see? I'd probably go with Australia. They've just got all kinds of crazy shit there. Um, and the, and the, hoping the to see the turtle frog? Turtle frog so. would be good to see, yeah. Um, but, you know, also the, the thorny devil lizard. Oh, um, uh, yeah. I'd like to see blackheads in the wild. I'd like to see the parenti monitors in the wild. Um, yeah, even you know, things that we have in the hobby here, but I just think it would be cool to see in the wild, like knobs. 
Yeah. You know, hell, even even wildest stuff. I just Australia's just got so many weird ass things as it is, uh, and just get oh, to yeah. see all of them in the wild would be cool. When when Eric and I go and I see like a bearded dragon in the wild and lose my shit, it's going to be totally <laughs> embarrassing and funny. Because I'll be like, you know, oh my god, it's like, yeah, but, oh, and there's like millions of those. No, but it's here in the dirt. Yeah, so yeah, so uh, it's totally. It's, understandable. it's the same thing here. I mean, I still, I'll see a garter snake outside, and I'll be like, and go carry it out. Just fifteen minutes chasing after a, a garter snake for God's sake. It's it's a snake that's half the size of mine. Outside, yeah, uh, no, done. Yeah. Oh yeah, but it's outside. Yeah. That, that's the whole thing. Things here. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Any particular you know, part in Australia? I've I've found that that since we're planning a trip there, uh, you know, there's there's so many different. Depending on what you want to see, uh, depends on where you want to go. Would where would where would you go in Australia? Um, I would probably target the western or northwestern regions um okay it's, in addition to reptile life and stuff i also as a hobby i grow carnivorous plants and stuff and uh. there are there are a ton of strange carnivorous plants on that side of australia um ones okay. that basically drop down to like a potato tuber during the dry summers and then come up row during the winter weird go dormant as like a almost a fuzzy looking pin cushion. So there's all kinds of cool stuff out there plant wise too. So in addition to awesome. wildlife getting to see some of that strange plant out there. Yeah. Right. Cool. I'm just hoping Eric very, very doesn't cool. get eaten by a crocodile. I mean that's the only thing I'm trying to avoid. <laughs> so I do look like a tasty snack. <laughs> yeah, you do. I mean, dear Lord. It's over. Yeah. Um so now, where can people get in touch with you, Travis? They want to talk to you about, you know, I don't know, some genetic stuff, or uh, are you going to be producing any animals this coming season, or are, are you strictly on a these are my cool sciencey pets kind of a guy? Um, I'm mostly just a cool sciencey pets kind of guy. I don't really breed nah. large numbers or anything. Um, okay. Every once in a while, I'll let that go, but it's usually just sides to whatever I was you know, trying to produce out. Um, to find me, uh, I usually lurk on Bush League, and mm -hmm. my handle there is Asplundii, A-S-P-L-U-N-D-I-I. -I. Um, it's also email, Asplundii at Gmail. People can email me there. Um, and you can hit me up on Facebook. My name, uh, God, what is it? Facebook slash T-H Wyman. Okay. Okay. So if, if if we if we hatch out anything freaky, send you pictures and be like, "What the hell is this?" And yeah, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll try to figure it out. What the hell is? All right, excellent. <laughs> <Do my> damnedest. <laughs> I will try. That's all I want. <laughs> so, Very cool. all right, awesome. We have been educated and a little That's bit right. smarter for the whole episode, which is that doesn't normally happen. So. <laughs> That's a, yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, Travis. Uh, Definitely. You know, Not a problem. I'll have something to, listen to, uh, something to listen to next week when I'm on vacation uh, to digest all this and <laughs> be that much more educated. You'll review it. But, uh, yeah. Yep. 
<laughs> Plus, you cool, know, cool. I scarred you for life with the turtle frog. Uh, yeah, that. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to see him in my nightmares. Oh my god! <laughs> also, also, the problem is that freaky animals like the turtle frog. <laughs> um, they're they're freaky, but then I find them absolutely fascinating because they're so freaky. So. At work tomorrow, I will be studying the turtle frog. <laughs> Read everything I can find on this thing. So, oh, Travis God, has started horrible. a whole new movement in herpticulture. <laughs> I was not yeah. prepared for this creature, but awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks again, man. Uh, it, uh, appreciate everything, man. Very, very cool stuff. So. Not a problem. <laughs> All right, well, all right. We'll, we'll see you later. We'll have you back on when we have more weird genetic things to discuss. So. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. All, right, all right. You have a good night, Travis. You as well. Cool. You feel, you feel smarter, Owen? You feel, you feel, you feel better? Yes. I, I feel better, and I like it that I was able to, you know, should have read my old uh, genetics notes from freaking college before we did this show um but I, I do like how everything was kind of explained a little bit more and i can't wait to go to the next show and point at the head pies and be like you do know that you do know that's an incomplete dominant and then walk away and let the little ball python people go what as I like leave them. No, it's and... not. Oh my goodness! No, you didn't not... learn anything during the show. No, I didn't. You need to reflect back tomorrow. Good I God! I do. <laughs> Pointed them and told them something. Oh. So. Uh... <laughs> oh my goodness! All right. Well, uh, let's see. Next week, I will not be here. Nope. I will be uh, down in Florida. Uh, possibly stopping at Daytona show. Uh, nice. That'll be interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Hopefully. Maybe. Uh, so next week, what are you doing? What's your show? A review. We're going to go over some stuff that I'm going to have Zach and Matt on, and we're going to go through a lot of the stuff that we have in taking care of our animals, various types of stuff. Uh, I'll Water review balls? my cages. Not yet. Well, maybe I'll let Matt cover that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want some sick water things, ball talk. <laughs> things like uh, things like the uh, different cages that we all all use, um, uh, heat panels that we all use, as well as the different computer systems that we all use. Telling you guys which ones are worth the money, which ones aren't worth the money, which ones have issues, which ones have problems. Uh, what we've all experienced as being an issue with these things, as well as reviewing it few other things uh somebody asked a review on snake hooks and i hate to break it to them i've made all my snake hooks so and i don't know maybe matt bought his so i don't i don't know so basically just try to get everybody you know different reviews of stuff that we've seen and whether or not you want to spend your money on that or something else so you know i heard a show today with uh nick mutton's show and he was talking about these new yeah. links and um yeah the first, rabbit sausage yeah yeah at first i was kind of like eh, i don't really get what's going on with that but uh the more that they that they talked about it on the show so if you have a chance you should go and listen to that show 
uh, almost so that I, I think maybe we'll get them to come on and talk to us too if they're available. But the possibilities uh, with that as far as I think kids in particular um, where mm -hmm. eating a – they talked about on the show about eating a rodent-based diet has bad for their systems. Eating hair mm -hmm. is bad for their systems. So they can eat something – that say a reptile based they were talking about maybe future having a reptile diet sausage uh that you could feed your snakes and then think of like anteresia how difficult they are to uh to get going on on rodents um if you had something that was you know reptile based sausage uh you would you know they would just have the guys who make the sausage grind up some skinks or something in the grinder instead. I, I don't. I don't. I. I gotta listen back to the show again. Yeah, because um, it's my so. understanding that it is whole prey, and what yes. I guess what they do is is that they are removing the GI tract as well as skinning it before it is processed. Well, the other thing that they were talking about is how much uh, waste is actually in the. Um, rodents that we feed you know feed our reptiles and when you think you're feeding it uh uh you know i don't know uh say something that weighs x amount it's really a lot less than that because um you know waste that's just in the rat you know mm -hmm. uh they say that it's a lot uh i, I know they talked about the, uh, the egg quality um, was much better, and that had to do with the grinding up of, uh, you know, the calcium that was in the in the reptile. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, interesting, nonetheless, especially like I said, for those more difficult species to get going. You know, I think of all the people that are working with like Kanduya and all that stuff now. Uh, I don't know, but I'm definitely gonna have to listen back to it. I mean, if I had known I could have made money, my grandfather was a butcher. I could have taken his grinder and a box of bullfrog, and we could have been off to the races. <laughs> Only you. <laughs> I'm. I'm just oh, saying. Boy. If this is this is where we're going, um, I can get Lord. there. I mean, note this up. I wonder. Have them on when Owen is on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> that I. That is a smart suggestion. Uh, yes. Apparently, you skipped a question, my friend. I skip many questions um, if I don't yeah. see them. I mean, it's I don't. Sorry, guys. <laughs> if if you really, really, really want your questions asked, email them to us before the show. Otherwise, we try to get to them when they're on the things. But if we're rolling, or if I'm not looking at my phone. I, I cannot ask them. I'm sorry. So I know Buddy's probably in tears over the fact that I didn't ask his questions. I'll make it up to him later by making him pay me. So <laughs> very good. Very good. Uh, okay. So anyway. let's throw this out there. Go for uh, it. So the Southern Carpet Fest is September 12th in texas uh i believe it's bill stiegel is uh hosting this one okay 
I guess if you want to find out more details, contact uh, Evan Browder, um, and he can hook you up with uh, with some more details. But yeah, they're they're getting that going, um, which is cool. I think I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to get there because that was supposed to be the weekend of the Northwest Carpet Fest, but they moved their uh-huh. date. So did you already take the. You already took the day off the or weekend. something like that? Yeah, I already have all. Oh it's just god. a matter of getting the tickets. So. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good possibility. You're flying to Texas? Wait, where? Yeah, where why it? not? Texas. All right. So. Okay. That's fine. Bill's going to sell you something while you're there. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have to take a picture, I think, with his or something. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's no. see. Ste- Steal his glasses, those those like surgical kind of really <laughs> zooming in glasses. Yeah, yeah. Bring them back. <laughs> so, yeah. Bring them just back for to you me. To take I don't, a- I don't want to use them. I just want to take a picture and be like, Bill, look what I have. But you know, yeah, yeah. That's all I want. We'll mail it back so, after we're done. But yeah, I, <clears throat> I get down there and hang out with those guys. I think it would be a good nice. time. So, it would be so. Uh, September 12th, if you're in Texas or in the Texas area, um, Southern Carpet Fest. And the Northwest Carpet Fest, just so everybody knows, is on October 3rd. Uh, October 3rd, Northwest Carpet Fest. I know that uh, Amy is looking for uh, donations for the uh, for the auction. Um, and mm-hmm. they're kind of looking for a head count to kind of have an idea of of who's coming. So um, go over to the uh, Best Carpet Fest Facebook site uh, and check out uh, check out there for more details. You can follow it over. I believe it's on the Carpet Fest Facebook page. If you have not liked that, um, if you have not liked that uh, group, then uh, be sure to go over and give it a like. And don't forget, then we have the Southeast Carpet Fest. November seventh, man, I'm taking a tour of the country. <laughs> oh, really? The South, the South Carpet Fest, the, the South, Southeast Carpet Fest, the Northwest. Yeah. Fest. Yeah, I can't make the Northwest one because that is the week before Tinley, so I will not be able to get to that. Huh? Maybe you should add out to that one, Owen. What? Well, uh-huh. <laughs> Which kind of bumps no. me out because I would like to hang out again, with uh, again, Nick again Monday, the money. Casey the money you think I have squirreled away is amazing. So, don't nah, maybe next year I'll still, they, again, maybe next year I'll uh, take trips out to the Carpet Fest. So, okay. So, we talked about what's going to be week on the show. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, for our website, moreypythonradio.com. If you have any questions and you want to email us, send them to info at moreliapythonradio.com. Uh, check out our Facebook page. Uh, give it a like. You can follow us on Twitter, Python. And if you want to listen to the show, the best way is to download it on iTunes. Uh, we talked about the Carpet Fest. I always have to throw yeah. out support USARC, USARC.org. If you're not a member, go sign up. Uh, and... Uh, I would also recommend when you're using ship your reptiles to ship them 
click the little box that donates a dollar. Um, yep. I Unfortunately always for anybody who's ever gotten anything shipped from me from Ship Your Reptiles, you've unknowingly donated a dollar to USR. I kind of just rhymed it in with your shipping. Sorry. <laughs> so, and no, I will not stop it. So, there you go. You've been warned. And uh, <laughs> I want to uh, promote a, uh, a, another Facebook group page. Uh, this one is called Breeders Direct. Right? Yep. Classifieds. Uh, the cool thing about this uh, Facebook page is, is that you're dealing directly with the person that produced it. I know a lot of times uh, we had Chris on the show weeks back and he talked about this, but uh, I'm just going to throw it out there. If you're looking for, uh, to get into Morelia, perhaps you want a carpet python, perhaps you want a chondro, maybe even a rough scale if there's even any available. But None if you're looking for... <laughs> if you're looking for uh, any of that stuff, you want to deal directly with the breeder with a, with those type of things. couple reasons why. The main one is is that especially with Moralia, whether it be uh, carpets or chondros, uh, you definitely want to see what the parents look like. You definitely want to see what the grandparents look like if possible um, because it makes you a good feel on uh, – how those babies are going to turn out. Mm. Um, so for instance, if you're looking for a killer jungle carpet, you don't want to just go buy jungle carpet off of, uh, off of Facebook, somebody that Randomly. you don't know because yeah. you're going to be disappointed, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and not to say when people are selling, say, you know, breeders or, uh, maybe older snakes that they didn't produce, but have been in their collection for a long time. Uh, I don't know. A couple trains of thought with that. I mean, some people can get them to go. I think Owen, like, I think your girl will probably be successful with this year. And the reason probably is, is because, well, one, she's been here for quite a while, but two, well, almost a year. Yeah. we're really, <laughs> well, we're really very close to each other in the grand yes. scheme. So it's not like it's like drastically different environments or anything like that. Um, yeah. But sometimes you take a chance. Like some people, I know this used to be something with, uh, I used to hear a lot on reptile radio with uh, ball pythons is that people would try to take shortcuts, buy a whole bunch of females, you know, mm -hmm. and then think that they were going to breed it. And turns out that they waited just as long as if they were uh, raising up. You know, I've had that. At, yeah. Uh, or if they don't go this season, you get them and then they end up going the year after or, or the year after Two that. Years it, after. Sometimes it takes a bit. So um, right. I would recommend buying babies and raising them up because you know what? It's easier that way. And they're once they are old enough to breed, it's like clockwork. They just go. So, yeah. Yep. So, again, if you're a more experienced keeper, you may be able to get around uh, get around those pitfalls that we're talking about with various tips and tricks uh, that you may know. Uh, however, if you're just kind of new into it, like I said, and you're looking for a quality carpet python or chondro, then that would be the place to go. Check it out. Yep. So, Breeder Direct Python Classified. Check it out. And let's see. I think uh, I think that is all I have as far as me, E.B. Morelia. You can follow me on my Facebook page. Um, EB Morelia, you can follow me on Twitter, which is EB Morelia. Check out my site, uh, which is uh, ebmorelia.com. 
you have any uh, questions, comments, looking for something that I have available, send it to me at e eric at EB Morelia. Um, the next show that we will be at will be Tinley Park. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're thinking about heading out, uh, me and Owen will be there along with uh, Zach. I know Matt from Philly Herp will be there. Uh, so the whole NPR group will be over at Carpet Row. Um, so if you're if you're there, come over and say hello, and uh, you know we'll chat about geek out about snakes. And Owen will make fun of me, then we'll make fun of Owen, and life will be good. It's usually how it goes, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's all I got. Cool. Uh, what I got is um, you can go to rogue-reptiles.com to figure out all the good stuff happening at Rogue. Uh, if you are on Facebook, you can go over to rogue-reptiles on facebook.com. Give us a like. You'll see all the animals we have for sale. If you have purchased any babies from Rogue and wish to add them to our uh, sold babies uh, album on the Facebook page, just send us a picture of the animal and tell us when you bought it, who the parents were, if you remember. If not, I will. Uh, and if the animal has a name, we'd be happy to throw it up there for you. And we always like looking at the kids after they've left the nest. Um, the next show for me is Tinley Park, Chicago with Eric. And that's October uh, 10th and 11th, 11th and 12th. One of those days around that time. Um, I think it's the 10th and 11th. Thank you. So 10th and 11th, uh, I will be at the September White Plains show. I'll be attending, not vending. So if you are planning on attending the White Plains show and wish to purchase an animal, we can deliver it to the show for free, uh, usually hanging around Mike Curtin's table uh, most of the day. But just let us know, and uh, we'll do that. Other than that, that's all I got. So what we'll say is thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch everybody next week for some more on radio minus Eric. Sorry, buddy. So good, good night, everyone. Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotics. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Markland and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit thereptilereport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is... It's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our Buy It Now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad that also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buying or selling? Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. 
ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live, on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder, then visit ShipReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. 